Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at what a mature Christian looks like. The character, the characterizations of what we're to strive for. And perhaps as we've looked at those things, you have thought, <clears throat> that seems rather challenging. That seems impossible. I can't do that. Or I can't be that. Today what I want to do is to help you understand that indeed you can and God will make you those things. There is a path between where you are and where you need to be. And this path is for every Christian to be on. This is not simply a call for super Christians to follow but a call for all Christians to follow. And as we chart this path, we need to note that to become skilled at anything requires two things, time and effort. In order to become a musician of skill, you must spend days and hours practicing over and over and over Very, very, very few people sit down at the piano and immediately become concert pianists. Instead, there are years of days, filled with days of practice over and over and over to become better at that skill. If you want to become a great athlete, it requires self-discipline and practice. Growth in every area, including relationships, require time and effort. When Christians do not think intentionally about our walk with God and our spiritual growth, we should not expect to grow. Without understanding those biblical marks of spirituality, the Christian will struggle to exemplify those marks. And without comprehension of where we are right now, our current spiritual state, a path to exemplifying these spiritual marks becomes impossible to find. The past two weeks, we've looked at the word of God to discover the marks of a believer. We identified five of them, a love for God's people, a desire to obey God's commands, a commitment to communicate with God, eagerness for unity through humility and producing the fruit of the spirit. This past week, we called on one another to live our lives uh, against these marks, to measure our lives against these marks and our current spiritual state and when we identify these marks and when we identify where we are then we can begin to chart a course a practical path between the two and today we're going to discover we can chart this path we can do this path and it consists of something we call spiritual disciplines it's not an easy path it takes effort any relationship including our relationship with god takes time and effort Further, God intends ordinary Christians to practice these spiritual disciplines. He does not reserve them for a special group of people. We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without godliness, no one will see the Lord. So all who will see the Lord must pursue godliness. And the path to godliness runs through these spiritual disciplines. Disciplines. Well, how can we do these things? How can we grow in Christ? How can we state God wants you 
to be a mature Christian. God wants you to practice spiritual discipline. Well, today I want us to walk through three important texts which show us God's method of spiritual growth, our responsibility in spiritual growth, and the danger of ignoring spiritual growth. Let's begin with the first text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And in this text, we see God's two-rail method of spiritual growth. Paul writes here, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, you have obeyed. You have listened and done what you've been called to do. And the call is to continue to do this, to grow in godliness. How do we do this? And Paul lays out a two-rail method that God uses for spiritual growth. As you go across the train tracks on the county, you will notice that it is one track, but it has two rails. And the question I have for you is this. Which rail is more important? The obvious answer is, well, yes, they're both important. If I remove any part of either one of those rails, the train will leave the track and it will it will result in ruin and wreck. Often in our spiritual life, we lean into one rail or the other of God's method of spiritual growth. But as we will look at this, it is important that we understand and lean into both Rails. What are these rails? Well, the first one is to work out your salvation. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the most obvious question that must be answered is this. Is Paul stating that we must work for our salvation? Salvation by works. Well, the obvious answer from all of Paul's writings is no. We think specifically of things like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is not the result of works. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved you. So we're not saved by works. Well, then what is Paul stating here? Well, notice the actual wording of the phrase. Paul says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Paul is stating that we need to live out, work in light of our salvation. As we consider salvation, usually we consider only justification. That moment in time where we come to Christ and we are declared righteous. But often in scripture, when it is referring to salvation, it is referring to the whole of salvation, not just justification, but also sanctification, the way that we are changed and conformed into the image of Christ, whereby we begin to live righteous and glorification where we are actually made righteous. All of those are included. 
So we are not justified or declared righteous by works. That is an act of God. However, when we are justified by grace, we begin to live in light of that, to live it out and to work it out our salvation. Paul is stating that we as believers are to live out our salvation. One commentator put it this way. For Paul, obedience expressed an essential ingredient in Christian living. The responsibility was to live in accord with their salvation, letting the implications of their relationship with Christ transform their social relationships. Paul really meant in the first place that they were to act like Christians. In other words, if you are truly a believer, then you will desire to live like one. For spiritual maturity to happen, it must begin in you. That is the result uh, that each of you see to it that God's purposes are accomplished in your life. Paul is stating that we're to act like Christians. We have to put in the work. We have to put in the effort to grow. What Paul is stating is that spiritual growth doesn't just happen. Perhaps a young man is getting ready to play football and he understands that he needs to grow in his strength in order to play well. So he doesn't just decide, I want to be strong and go to bed that night stating that fact. I want to be strong and wake up the next morning looking like a bodybuilder increased in incredible strength. That's not how it works. If he wants to grow and be strong, he has to put in the effort, go to the gym and lift the weights and do the work and eat the right things in order to become strong. It takes intentional efforts. You and I cannot grow in our walk with God without intentional effort. Often, I think we just assume that it's just going to happen. I'm a Christian, and therefore, I'm going to grow. But that's not how it works. And sadly, many Christians sit in church Sunday after Sunday and have been justified for years, but have not grown in sanctification because they do not put in the effort that is needed to grow in their walk with God. So we'll see in a little bit, this effort is known and seen through specific spiritual disciplines. But notice that Paul states that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul adds a note of soberness to this call. Fear is the word we get phobia from. Trembling indicates a nervous and trembling anxiety to do right. It's the word we get the word tremor from. And the idea is this soberness with which we are to face all of life. We ought to be fearful. We ought to tremble that we don't grow. Because we see in the text right before the one we looked at in verses 10 and 11, he talks about the day. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will stand before God one day. And so we ought to live each day with that idea, that reality in mind that we will stand before God and give an account for what we do. 
So we're called to live out our salvation. The attitude today that is pervasive in society, even in churches, is a general attitude of silliness. A general attitude of lackadaisicalness and frivolity and joking. I think MacArthur puts it best when he states the attitude with which Christians are to pursue their sanctification involves a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and respect for him. The reality is that the world and Christianity today loves to focus solely on the grace and love of God and the grace and love of God are glorious and wonderful truths. But we cannot forget about God's holiness and justice and wrath. Hebrews twelve twenty nine tells us our God is a consuming fire. Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10 both tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why should we approach life with soberness? Why is living with an attitude of silliness and frivolity such a danger? And the answer is this. Sin is a big deal. Living in spiritual immaturity and giving into sin is a big deal. Sin is more than simply messing up. Sin is more than just, you know, I mean, it's really not the right thing to do. Sin is something that angers a holy and righteous God. And throughout scripture, we see that God reacts towards sin with wrath. Proverbs 59 tells us that the way of the wicked is an abomination to God. James states that a major aspect of our relationship to God is our attitude towards sin. And James 4 verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your gloom to, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This kind of language in the Old Testament indicates awe in the presence of God. A fear of God's presence. Throughout this text, as we're told to do these things, to act it out with fear and trembling, there's an attitude of humility and submission to God. Taking seriously your walk with God. Thinking intentionally about your Walk with God. Living intentional lives. It's not just the fear of being doomed to eternal torment or this helpless dread of judgment. But a reverential fear. A holy concern to give God the honor that he deserves. And in this living out of our salvation, the world does a lot to discourage it. When the path of obedience to Christ becomes deep becomes dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment or instantaneous enlightenment or emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take quick shortcuts. You won't find them on the long, intentional path that follow the footsteps of Christ, who is obedient to death. Even the death on the cross. You are called to intentionally work for your salvation. Intentionally work to become like Christ. 
every day intentional actions to grow. So how do we gain the desire to do that? Because that does not sound very exciting. Playing soccer or any sport. You practice You go through the drills and the running and the endurance things and the things to grow your strength. I think it is very rare that you'll find the athlete that at some point doesn't think, why am I doing this? I think I would rather eat a donut and watch a cartoon. That sounds easier. So why? Get up early to run and to lift. Why go through the drills over and over and over? What gives you the desire to do that? And the answer is the end. The final goal. How do we gain this desire to serve God? How do we work out our salvation? Well, this is the second track or the second rail of the track. Rely on God's power. Verse 13. For it is God... Who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God energizes you. That word works in you is the word we get energized from. He fills you with the energy or the power to desire and to have the energy to work. You don't just will it in yourself. And this is where sometimes frustration can come. We want to do what's right. And so we work hard. We put in the effort to do the right thing. And we try harder. And we fail. We think, I need to control my anger. I need to stop being so angry. And so we commit, I will stop being angry. No more anger. No more anger. No more anger. Then the individual who skipped driver's ed... Cuts us off. Drives really slow. And our resolve fails. We begin to share with them how much we love Jesus. Our resolve is not simply enough. We need the second rail. The power of God. Galatians 3.3. Paul calls out the Galatians for this. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Put that perhaps in more modern language, Paul is asking, are you that dumb? You think you were saved by the Spirit, but you can make yourself better? He says, no, you have to have the power of God in you. You see, the pull and the allure of sin is strong in our lives. If sin was not so pretty, we wouldn't struggle with it. Satan does not appear. He rarely appears as that horned devil with the pitchfork and the pointy tail. Come with me so I can ruin your life. Of course not. We would look at him and say, thank you, but no thank you. I'll pass today. Rather, he appears as the angel of light. We struggle with sin because we enjoy it. Yet at salvation, and as we grow in our relationship with God, God through his spirit implants into us a new desire toward God. 
Any desire to do right is from God alone, and that is good news. Because although we are to work out our salvation, God is the one who works in us and gives us the power to do it. You ever met someone with little to no motivation to accomplish the task at hand? Maybe it was in your job, that person at work that just doesn't pull their weight, but seems to need to use the restroom 95 times a day. Never misses their break. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's that kid on your child's sports team. It's a little more interested in chasing the butterflies and counting the dandelions than actually playing the game. Perhaps it's your own child. No desire to clean their room. No desire to do anything around the house or accomplish their chores. It's aggravating. Yet, for many of us, that's the way we approach spiritual maturity. We've just kind of determined, you know, that's just who I am and I just can't change. I know I need to learn to bridle my tongue. But listen, it's just who I am. I speak my mind. I'm never going to be able to change. I know I should get into God's word, but I'm not educated like the rest of you. And I just don't like to read. It's just who I am. And so we have no desire to change. We've simply determined it's who we are. We've, we've tried. We just can't. Well, this verse gives new life to those people. As you draw near to God, he will implant in you a new desire to overcome sin and please him. But not only does he implant us the desire to overcome sin, he also gives us the power to do it. He says that God works in us to work out our salvation. That word energy. God energizes us to have the energy to do what we're called to do. He doesn't just tell us, overcome sin. Good luck with that. And then mock us when we can't. He tells us to overcome sin. And then he works through the process with us and gives us the power to do it. You know, at times we might feel that God is asking the impossible. We looked at those marks of what it means to be a spiritual Christian. And we think that, is, that that's really nice to think, but there's no way I can do that. But we need to recognize that God will grant us the power to accomplish it. God is the creator of the universe, the sovereign of all things, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God who has promised us that he will work in us the power to overcome sin. You're not in this battle alone. When you feel like quitting on your marriage or your family, don't. You're not in this, this battle alone. When you feel like you can't help but go to that wicked webpage again, don't. You're, you're not in this power, in this battle alone. When you're sick of fighting against sin and temptation because you feel as though no one else is with you, don't. You're not alone. You can overcome sin because it is God that works in you so that you can work out your salvation. But why would God want to do this? 
Why would God choose to help people like us who consistently struggle with sin, who consistently fail and fall into it, and whose lives at time reflect a horrible train wreck more than the glorious gospel of Christ? Why would the God of the universe choose to help weak people like us who simply can't seem to get out of our own way? Why would God care about your marriage, your job, your family, your health, your innermost struggle with that secret sin that no one knows about? Well, Paul states that he does all of this out of and for his own good pleasure. God does so because it pleases him to do so. And all that God does, he does for his pleasure. And since God is holy good, what pleases him is not capricious, but is holy good for those he loves. And it's not based on you. It's based on God. God does it because he loves to do it. And he'll keep doing it because he loves to keep doing it. So you can have the strength to overcome sin. This passionate, persistent relationship with God, this battle with sin is accomplished through Christ. But we need to lean into both rails. So often we lean into the one rail where we just try harder. Out of guilt, we determine I'm going to change. And we just, we're going to try. Just do it. And we fail and we become frustrated. Other times we lean into the other rail and there's been some bad theology that is out there that just simply says, well, you just have to let go and let God do it. God will do it. Just surrender to him and it'll work. And you just lean into that rail and you say, but God, I made the decision. I've made that decision and surrendered to you like 95 times and I'm still failing. Why? Because it takes both rails. Surrendering to God and to his power and then working and acting in that power. This is important because Paul is well aware of the work of building of the community of believers is frustrating. He's aware that living for Christ is hard. He's aware that sin is ever at the door. We'll see in a few months when we get to Romans 7. He's the one who said, I want to do good, but I can't seem to do good. And the, the good I want to do, I don't seem to be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will free me from the body of this death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ gives the power to do this. But every Christian should understand that spiritual growth takes strenuous effort dependent on God's power. And as a result, holy resolve leads to holy living. But what does that look like? What does this work look like? How do we do this? Let's turn now to a second passage, which informs us of our responsibility in spiritual growth. First Timothy chapter four, first Timothy four. In this letter, as Paul is writing to Timothy about what makes a good minister of God, he also gives indications as to how we grow in godliness. And this text, this verse is vitally important. He says this in First Timothy, excuse me, 
Yeah, First Timothy chapter four and verse number seven. I have the wrong verse written down. Yes. Okay. It is verse seven. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, here's the key phrase, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Some translations, the King James translates that as discipline yourself for godliness. This word trained in or train in godliness means to nourish in, to redigest. It's actually a difficult word to translate because it's the only time this word appears in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere else. And it's rarely found even in secular Greek. We find it, uh, the Greek philosopher Plato used it in one of his books. And he used it of those who work in the laws. They nourish themselves in the laws. They, they discipline and study hard the laws. It was used of those who spent significant time studying and finding their mental food in them. And so this is why many translations use the word discipline. It's effort and work and absorption in. So what Paul is saying here is that a good servant of Christ is the one who works hard for godliness. Who disciplines themselves. This is more than just a a passing care for godliness. It's more than just a passing desire. It's a discipline. My sister and I, growing up, both took instruments, uh, lessons in instruments. I did not turn into a proficient musician. My sister is an incredible violinist. What was the difference? Why did one become a proficient violinist and the other do better not playing? Why? Same family, same upbringing. What was the difference? When it came time for me to put in the work and practice, I always found other things that desperately needed done. Things like studying the back of my eyelids or playing my video games. On the other hand, perhaps it's because of my failure. My parents were a lot more rigid with her. And she was forced every day for periods of time to put in the effort, the discipline to practice. And the result was she's very good and I am very not. One disciplined, one did not. What is the secret to godliness? What is the secret to being a faithful servant of God? Paul tells us discipline, doing the work, putting in the time. It goes well beyond simply maintaining a faithful daily quiet time with God. It means that the good servant of God finds that time as the source of his life and energy. He gives himself to it. Do you give yourself to godliness? Do you give yourself towards pleasing God?
Is that an all-consuming desire for you? Or is it something that you rarely think about? The gospel should center in everything that we do. That's why Paul tells us whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. A Christian who neglects to discipline himself to grow in godliness is a Christian that will ever remain immature. So there is a path. The path is discipline, effort, work. Paul tells Timothy further in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He says, do your best to present yourself. It's not just going to happen by accident. The goal of this study is to understand what God expects of us, to follow it, and to lead the church in following it. So it's not simply an intellectual exercise. We have to discipline ourselves to grow in the faith and understand what God expects. That's why we refer to these actions as spiritual discipline. The servant of God that does not labor in studying the word and putting it into practice and faithfully obeying it is not a faithful servant of God. Next week, we'll begin to identify some of these spiritual disciplines that help us grow. But for this week, I want us to finally consider the danger of failing in godliness. Because this sounds like a whole lot of work. To be perfectly honest, this doesn't sound very fun. So why? Why must the Christian do this? Turn finally over to Second Peter chapter 3. In Second Peter... Paul warns believers regarding the reality of coming judgment. That God is coming. That he will return. And we will all give an account to him. And in this third chapter, Paul devotes himself to this topic. He says in verse 1, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that had then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
But the day of our Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In that second epistle, Paul is warning about the coming of the day of the Lord. And in this chapter, he devotes himself to it. And although false teachers will mock and ridicule the idea of Christ's return, Paul identifies their apostasy as a sign of coming judgment. God's delay of judgment does not nullify the coming judgment's reality. And so the believer must live with an expectation of the coming judgment. They need to do so in holiness and godliness. We see that in verse 11. And Paul concludes this letter with the encouragement to be found holy upon his return. Verse 14. So the Christian needs to guard against following false teachers in their apostasy. Needs to guard against frivolity and foolishness of this world. Needs to guard against living for sinful fleshly desires and for self. Instead, they're to grow in their walk and knowledge of God because God is coming back. The return of the Lord motivates the believer to grow. And this way is godliness. And there's a danger. And the danger is this. If you ignore growing in godliness, God will come back and find you lacking. And you will stand ashamed. He tells you, I told you I was coming. I told you you'd give an account. And your response is, I didn't really believe you. The danger is that you'll be found lacking at Christ's coming. But you won't hear him say, well done. One diligently, humbly, and intentionally seeks to grow in their walk with the Lord, God empowers them with the ability to grow. But this growth requires diligence. Without a commitment that doesn't wane, the believer will become aimless. With divided allegiance between God and the world, they act like boats in a storm, driven wherever the wind of life takes them. Growth takes humility. Those who don't admit weakness cannot grow in that weakness. But when we humbly recognize areas of weakness, then we can grow. And often growth requires ordinary acts of grace and lengthy amounts of time. It's not some amazing thing that happens instantaneously. The individual needs to be humble enough to recognize that lengthy process of sanctification. Growth requires Intentionality. Without deliberate action, we cannot expect to grow in holiness. The spiritual disciplines require intentional daily action. Plans. Reserved time. Intentional action accompany spiritual discipline. 
And while God infuses the believer with the power and the will to obey him, he requires that the believer live it out intentionally. God requires godliness in the life of the believer. And so godliness must be our focus. And the only way to become godly is through the intentional acts of the spiritual disciplines. This is why they're so vital. So over the next few weeks, we'll begin to look at some of these spiritual disciplines in hope that you will grow them into your lives and intentionally become spiritual, spiritually mature people of God. Today, I want to leave you with three things. One, become intentional about your growth, about your growing in walk with God. Don't just expect that it's just going to happen. I go to church Sunday morning, so I'm going to be good. Become intentional about it. Every day involved in growing. But then number two, don't become discouraged by slow growth. Growth takes a long time. And so we have to be patient. When a baby is born and begins to cry that it is hungry, the parent does not look at the baby and begin to rebuke them that they did not get up and go to the fridge and get themselves something to eat. Nor do they do that after the first year or the second year or the third year or probably even the fourth year. It takes time for them to grow and develop to where they can properly feed themselves. So also, in our spiritual life, it takes time to grow. So when you come to God again and say, God, forgive me for I have sinned that sin again. Don't become discouraged. Rather, take hope in the promise that God will forgive your sin and give you grace because he is faithful and just. Finally. Commit to practice the spiritual disciplines as we examine them. Here's the thing about spiritual disciplines. They're just like personal physical disciplines. They take incredible effort and intentionality. They don't just happen. And it's hard. So you have to commit to do it and do it over and over and over. So commit now to practice these spiritual disciplines as we begin to examine them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word. We thank you that you have given us the way to grow spiritually, that you've not left us to try and figure it out on our own, but you have mapped it out for us so that we might hear you one day say, well done. We thank you also that you have given us the power to do it, You don't mock us in our inability, but rather you infuse us with your own power that we might begin to obey you. So, Lord, I ask that you would help us to be intentional about our spiritual growth. That we would not simply live lives reactionary, just doing the next thing. Rather, that we would be very intentional about setting aside time and effort to grow in our walk with you, to exemplify you in everything that we do. So one day when we do stand before you, we will be godly and hear you say, well done. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.